happening now on Wednesday, December 7th, 2016. You are watching the EdTech Situation Room. We want to welcome our guests from around the United States and all over planet Earth. We know there's a few of them that are in other places to our show. And I am amazed at how cool it is in Missoula, Montana with my friend Jason Neifer, who makes us in Oklahoma look like quite the pansies <clears throat> complaining about, oh, it's going to be under freezing, you know, for a while tomorrow. <laughs> what does cold look like for you today, Jason, and, and for uh, other uh, Montana residents? Good question. Um, uh, okay, Google, what's the low temperature going to be tonight? Just nine. So it's. I think that's a heat wave over last night. So I think we dipped to like negative one last night. So it's warming up here. But uh, the thing that's been new about winter this year in uh, Missoula is that it hit us pretty, pretty uh, uh, fast and furious. November was a relatively warm month uh, for November in Montana. And then three days ago, the colds of doom blew in. So winter is definitely here. In fact, I was just looking and uh, we're going to get a little heat wave. Um, it's going to be up to 37 degrees on Sunday. And then 40 hours later, the low is going to be negative 10. So, you know, it's a variety here in Montana. So there you go. But we hope you're, you're able to be cozy and warm wherever you're listening to our podcast. Uh, whether you're new to our show or you've been listening for a while, you can access all of the links that we'll be talking about on edtechsr.com slash links. Our normal format is to kind of have a rundown of some of the top uh, articles or some of the more interesting news articles from the past week, and sometimes we'll go back further than that and put an educational lens on them uh, to kind of take you through the month. We're going to be back next week on the 14th, and we're going to plan for a special uh, technology shopping cart show where we're going to borrow from the format of the Committed podcast, which I enjoy listening to, and uh, have hopefully a couple other guests, and we'll all do some picks that are under $20 from $20 to $100 and then over $100, and have some fun thinking about holiday shopping and uh, our wish lists and what we may or may not be getting for the holiday or giving for the holiday. And then we're going to be off the week of the 18th through the 24th. We normally do a show on the 21st, but we'll be, we'll be off then for the holidays. But then we will have an end of year show with the date coming to us as Jason will be literally on assignment, checking out some of the finer uh, delicacies of Europe in, in parts unknown, but across the, across the pond, as it were. So we're going to try to make that international connection, and we'll see also about connecting with some other guests. So stay tuned. Follow us on EdTechSR on Twitter. That is where we will be posting our updates. So, Jason, where would you like to take us to start off our 30-second episode today? Well, um, we um, the, I'll just go with the top article that you'd posted, Wes, partly because I've got an update for myself. Uh, Google has officially released its Google Wi-Fi a mesh Wi-Fi system, and for those of you unaware of what a, a mesh Wi-Fi system is, um, mesh Wi-Fi, the, the idea is you can cover very large distances, creating kind of a blanket of Wi-Fi by taking devices and placing them strategically in, in a large grid so that uh, if you have a, 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 a Wi-Fi node on one end and five in the middle that and, and, and the Internet connection is only available on one end and they would talk to each other to create distance and create coverage of Wi-Fi over a large space. And earlier this year, Google built upon its, um, its, its, uh, uh, I guess, uh, Wi-Fi equipment offerings. They, uh, last year released something called the Google On Hub, which was a, a, a reference prototype design of a, of a router that I think a couple manufacturers made. I actually own an On Hub router. That's what I use, uh, to, um, uh, to serve Wi-Fi up to my home. And I've noticed that, and I'm pretty sure this is not the Wi-Fi equipment. This is just the house that I'm in, that there are some dead spots. I, I'm thinking part of them are construction related. So I've actually ordered, you can buy the Google Wi-Fis in one packs or three packs. The idea behind a three pack is you, spa you space them strategically throughout your home. For me, I just wanted one because it talks to the, the on-hub router and will create a, an extender for Wi-Fi in my home. Um, and so I've got a, a place that I know I want to put it. Uh, uh, FedEx says it'll be here on Friday, and we're hoping it, it clears up the kind of Wi-Fi dead zones in my home. 
Um, there's a couple reasons why the Google uh, Wi-Fi is interesting to me. First and foremost, the fact that Google is making a lot more of its own equipment now. So Google Wi-Fi is made by Google, um, just like their new Pixel phones are are made by Google. Um, the second piece is, is that they seem um, interested in kind of wiggling their way into your home in more than just a software way. Uh, they have the Google... Um, uh, home now, the, the voice recognized thing that I've actually, uh, you know, own for three weeks now and get a lot of joy out of. It's an excellent platform, but I think they're starting to make some strategic decisions to do what Apple does, do what Amazon does, and, um, you know, really start placing some Google branded stuff in your house. So Wes, I know you are in, in, in an Apple home. Um, not that my, my home is not Apple friendly because there's plenty of MacBooks and iPads running around my, my joint as well. But do any of these products have any cachet for you? I'm definitely interested. You know, the fact that you can use a app on your device to do quality of service and to restrict uh, the bandwidth that other folks like to give priority, for instance, to our show. Um, we've joked and, and not just joked. It's been the literal, the literal, you know, everybody off Netflix, you know, when, when we're streaming, um, you know, has some appeal. Um, I, I've actually deactivated the, uh, what is it called? Air, Airport Express upstairs. We just had some, did some issues with it. And, and when I got the newer time capsule, it was more powerful. So, um, you know, it it is of interest. Is it a priority at this point? I don't I don't think so. I, I did go to the Verizon store and look at the, the Pixel and, you know, dabbled a little bit again, thinking about maybe, you know, what would this be like if, if I uh, jumped into the Android? I'm, I'm so heavily invested in the iOS environment that right. it's uh, difficult thinking about jumping ship uh, for either phones, you know, or other other things. But I'm glad glad to see it. And um you know, as we're going to talk about tonight, as we always do, I think about security issues and and surveillance things. You know, especially on the on the security side. Gosh, we 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 shouldn't be just you know having this old you know uh, Netgear or, or uh, D-Link router you know from ten years ago and saying you know it's just great, I, no problems with it. I mean, the the ways in which folks are compromising uh, routers as well as other Internet of Things devices. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a certain amount of inevitability to the problems that we're going to be having and, and cyber attacks and things because, you know, people tend to be lazy and companies also, you know, tend to, you know, I mean, they're taking the easy way out rather than right. really putting a priority on security now and um, looking to companies like like Google or Apple um, that have had more experience or, or Microsoft for that matter, you know, trying to keep things secure you know, there's just, it's, it's, it is a wild west of devices. So, um, I don't think so, but, you know, I'm interested. I'll be excited to hear what you have to say. Uh, and I'm certainly, you know, very interested in the, in the AI developments of all of this because it's, uh, again, go back to, we've, we've said it before, uh, Sanjar Pachai, if I'm going to say his name right, back in October saying that, you know, AI was the new search for Google. It's going to be that big of a deal. And the Google Home that you've bought, I did look at Black Friday specials because, you know, Verizon and other places have that discounted, I think, yep. 30, 30 bucks or something like that. Yep. But um, I, I, I'm, I'm finding myself frustrated with Siri. You know, I'm irritated when she can't, you know, get it right with, with names and, and with things that I'm trying to, to get her to do. And I'm uh, very curious on, you know, how fast Google is going to advance vis-a-vis uh, Amazon and uh, and Apple with uh, the the voice recognition and and the ability to do compelling things uh, with voice control. So yeah. I I also did note in that article I think that you can go to Best Buy and I think Walmart as well to pick those up if they're available in your area. So you don't necessarily have to have to wait. It may be on the shelves or maybe they've sold like hotcakes in your area and you know there's no none, none available, but. It'll be good to hear you uh, check in, and maybe maybe you'll convince me to uh, to make the move. Well, and I have to say that uh, I, I've had similar um, uh, experiences as U.S. with uh, I, I feel like Siri's not really keeping up with with uh, Alexa and, and Google now, and to a lesser extent Cortana, which is you know baked into Windows 10. But um, yeah, I think that that whoever figures out these will be leaders in 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 home initiatives. And I don't have any smart home items right now. Actually, that's not true. I have a Wi-Fi connected uh, outlet that is like of 
zero use, but you know, I can turn it on from my phone. So, um, um, that's, I guess, kind of interesting, but, um, it, it, that's it, right? I mean, I don't have any of the smart lights. I don't have any of the, um, other devices. We, we, we are going to invest in a Wi-Fi connected, uh, thermostat just because our thermostat, we were going to get a programmable one anyways with, with the weather. So that might be something interesting, but it, it'll be interesting to watch this play along. You know so. what? Hopefully this isn't going to bite us. I actually tweeted the live join link to our hangout. I was in one that a friend of mine did uh, when he accidentally did that, and a troll joined his hangout. So thankfully we don't have thousands of people just hanging on our every tweet who just, you know, clicked that link. That was <laughs> uh, – this is not something you want to do. Sorry. Um, okay, well, I know we're. I think we're going to get into a lot of discussion. Uh, I'd like to, as far as this Guardian article, uh, yep. later. But a couple other ones that are that are interesting, just to sort of hit. Uh, we have been doing lots of work on digital citizenship. In fact, today, our um, school psychologist and I, who are co-chairing our digital citizenship team at school, uh, penned what is close to the final draft of a five-year strategic plan for digital citizenship for our school. And so we've been looking at lots of resources, curricula, talking to different schools. We've had a mini-summit a while back. The article I want to give a shout-out to is CNN yesterday, How Much Time Do Parents Spend on Screens As Much As Their Teens?, and the citations there is a new study uh, that Common Sense Media published that shows, yes, adults are tending to spend just as much time as their teens and about, I think it says, three more hours than their their tweens on devices. So sometimes we tend to, as adults, you know, be bemoaning the new generation and, oh, I just can't believe, you know, how much they're on their screen. But, you know, turns out we're... We're do, we're doing just as much screen time yeah. as as a, as uh, as kids are, and it's 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 a huge issue. It's a it's right. an important issue for digital citizenship. You know, finding balance um, here at the holidays. Uh, I think we might, you know, throw down the towel perhaps on a day and say, hey, it'll be a a no screen day, and you know, break out the board games uh, left to our own devices. We can stay on our own devices, and uh, you know, that's not. It, it it can be fun, but you know it's also good to to have that face to face time and to think about being intentional with our devices. So I mean, it's um, I, I noticed you know that tonight at dinner, um, our youngest was <laughs> we were just kind of all having leftovers and and eating on we weren't all sitting down together to eat at once, but you know she was on Snapchat the the entire meal, <laughs> and so um, it's uh it. it it's a sign of the times. So do you find your, are you finding yourself putting any limits on your screen time or, or is that something negotiated between you and your wife? Uh, how does that play out in your home? It, it's a great question. Uh, we talk about this quite a bit and actually I, I do now two different presentations uh, as, as part of my work as a professional development uh, guy. Um, one on, on, on self-distracted uh, teachers and the other ones on, on, on student distraction. And, um, and I would also note that there is uh, this week's Note to Self podcast from WNYC uh, tackles this issue from a slightly different angle. They, they call distracted as the new drunk. Um, related to driving, and it's it's an excellent, excellent. I just listened to it earlier. I was taking a, a jaunt around the chilly neighborhood. Um, I, it's in 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 my household, um, no kids, just pets. Um, they and 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 they will let us know if we're looking at the phone too much, right? They'll get right in our lap and 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 let us know. But it's something we have to talk about as a couple. I mean, there are times when we have to set rules about dinner. We have to set rules about um, you know family. Um, we have to. We we've created our, our bedroom as a no device zone, uh, Kindles only, um, in in our bedroom um, because uh, I think you should read a number of different folks on this issue saying that you know having the phone so easily accessible to you in bed encourages you to pull it out uh, at times you shouldn't with the backlighting and the blue lighting and that sort of thing. But yeah, it, it is really an issue, and you know part of what I think we we need with and, and Wes has heard me present in, in this kind of, these types of terms before, right? But uh, there is a kind of a I, I think an intellectual evolution that's going on related to the way we engage with such things, right? 
Like you, you couldn't have the world at your fingertips at bedtime, right? So no wonder you may want to sit there and read 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 because you know before you had the you just single book or maybe the stack of books by your bed and now you literally have access to you infinitely large numbers of interesting things. But we have to redesign the way we um you know, engage in that in, in the same way that I think sometimes uh, we had a vet tell us recently that, you know, if you put unlimited food out, a dog would probably eat, it, eat itself to death, right? Um, uh, you know, I think humans in their thirst for knowledge will, you know, read and read and read and read and look and look and look and look and, look and tap and tap and tap and tap because, you know, things are interesting, right? So we have to draw, draw limits for ourselves if it's not happening externally. And so I'm glad this conversation's going on. Um, I think it's, it's also related to the fake news problem on Facebook. It's related to the, um, you know, overstimulation um, in media. There, there's lots of, of, of things surrounding this issue, but it feels like we're starting to have finally some honest conversations around it. So I, I think it's really great news that we're heading in that direction. Well, the, the next article is an Ars Technica article from yesterday that says T-Mobile is excited about life under Trump, reversal of net neutrality rules. And, you know, I'm curious, Jason, to know what what your thoughts are. My idea about net neutrality is that it's, you know, kind of a holy grail of the Internet. And as we as we start to see companies substantially try to tweak this, that, you know, we risk uh, changing some of the foundations of the Internet that have have made it the the creative and powerful and, and largely egalitarian medium that it is. Although there is a dark side to that, which we've talked about, and I know we're going to get into some today. But uh, for folks who may not have followed this, T-Mobile has allowed folks to basically have no data caps on streaming music services. And it's a binge on service. And for us, we've been T-Mobile uh, for a couple years now. And, you know, it does excite our, our girls and, and it sounds great. But, you know, it, it in T-Mobile's case, it doesn't so much put different companies at a competitive disadvantage because, as I understand it, they've allowed any company to basically apply and then become uh, eligible for this, whether it's, you know, Spotify or Apple Music or Netflix or whatever. The more troubling thing is that we've seen AT&T come out with their new uh, digital direct TV um, uh, offering. And so they are giving the preferential data treatment for their own product, which is going to put everybody else at a disadvantage. And, you know, seeing these big media companies basically you know, flout the idea of uh, of treating all packets with with um, you know equal treat. It's not equal treatment under the law, but you know, treating right. all yeah. packets equal. Uh, it's a it's a cornerstone of the internet. So, any thoughts on that, Jason? Well, I mean, I I, I think the nerds, uh, as they did in the past when net neutrality was at risk, will will rise up and 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 hopefully help create some public outcry related to this. But I'll tell you where the lack of net neutrality really terrifies me is as a as a government funded program that serves online students, right? Like, I don't think that my program will qualify or be able to pay for upper tiers of data access with providers. So I don't really know what, what happens to, you know, we, we have a media rich program. We have a video server where we serve up video to students. We, you know, provide, uh, you know, live interactive, uh, uh, tutoring 24 hours a day to our students. Um, I don't really estimate that those streams will be able to access the higher tiers of faster access under a net neutrality scheme. Uh, I'm sorry, a lack of a net neutrality scheme. Um, and I would really worry about what happens to the quality of my program in a world where we're, you know, uh, uh, relegated to, you know, 250K uh, uh, per second internet. Like, I, I just think that that is not good. So um, that's where I come from. And I think schools will, will really struggle under a net neutrality um, uh, situation. Some people will clearly benefit, and I'd be willing to bet a third of consumers, maybe more, might find it to be preferable because they, you know, have relatively not nuanced or diverse tastes in what they're doing on the internet. And I do think that, that from a sales standpoint, it could create a lot of economic interest for average consumers, right? But I think in the end, it's going to really hurt, as you suggested before, Wes, the, why the internet's important. Any articles you'd like to, to jump to before we get into the Guardian piece? 
Yeah, well, let me go ahead and do this re- this week in Apple hand wringing, and I don't need to talk more than a few seconds on each one of these articles. But uh, there's there's two articles that I shared tonight. One of them is is a, an article from yesterday's CNET about how Apple's pricey MacBook have me looking at uh, the Microsoft Surface Four or um, or um, no, I guess it's Surface Pro, so the Surface Book, so the Surface Pro, the tablet with the keyboard on it, and then the new Microsoft. Pros that happen to be uh, a plagued by complaints about battery life and weird battery glitches. I would also note that there was another article that I, I couldn't find the, 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 a good link to. There's references to the story, but Apple is also admitting now that the 5S and the 5S, I'm sorry, the 6S and the 6S Plus, a year after it was released, is starting to experience battery issues a year after its manufacturer. So they're admitting to this now. That's the key piece is that before now they were uh, 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 saying that it was uh, likely user error or damage from end users. Now they're saying it's probably not. But, um, you know, I I do think Apple's a struggling company, to be honest. Uh, Not that they, I mean, they make more profit. They make 91% of the world's cell phone profits. Not from that standpoint, but I do think they're having problems putting together a line of computers that, that reaches everyone's desires and needs. And as much as I think there's a lot of cool stuff in the new MacBook, um, uh, you know, stuff like this can't, can't help. And so um, I certainly am not on the Apple hate bandwagon by any stretch of the imagination, despite my use of an Android phone. Instead, I'm joining by a Windows 10 laptop. But... Um, you know, there's something going on, and I do think they could use, I mean, they may be, have gotten a little comfortable on top and need to get a little hungry again. From a school standpoint, I'll, I'll check in with, with the thinking that, uh, hopefully this next week, we'll, we'll see if, as far as being able to share this with our administrative team, but we've been looking at, uh, refresh options for our teachers. We have, you know, over 90% of them with MacBook Pro laptops, and, um, you know, for those, we, we're wanting to, um, explore the option of having some choices and not just just saying it's MacBook Pro or or nothing. But uh, Apple is still continuing to produce uh, the older generation of MacBook Pro in part for the education market, much like they produced the pre-retina MacBook Pro that had the the built-in DVD. Uh, This one's got USB, you know, ports. It's, uh, you know, not C ports, USB 2 and and I guess 3 ports. It's got a built-in HDMI port. It's got um, Thunderbolt. Uh, that is the, the $1,300 MacBook Pro laptop that I think would be the best, uh, option for our teachers at this point. It's just too, it's too big of a stretch to say, you know, you, you've got to have a dongle to, to plug in USB. I mean, I'm doing that with my MacBook Pro right now, or not Pro, with my MacBook, with the, the light 11 inch, you know, with my, my big, big video dongle here that I have my power plugged into and then my, uh, USB iRig mic. Uh, it's, it's a workable kind of thing, but anyway, I, uh, certainly don't see us as a school jumping right now on the USB-C bandwagon, either with the super thin MacBook line or with the, the new MacBook Pro line. And so, um, you know, Apple is not going to abandon their education customers. Um, it's not the biggest part of their market by any stretch of the imagination, right. but, um, you know, I'm glad that they're still continuing to, to uh, produce that. And, um, you know, laptops overall have reached kind of an interesting plateau where yeah. it's like, do you really need, you know, the next generation? And even as we look at refreshing and, you know, we've got labs with um, oh, a four-year-old, you know, MacBook Pros that have four gigs of RAM and i5 processors, you know, slapping an SSD in those makes it a pretty, you know, zippy machine still today. So um, I think that, you know, it's probably natural for Apple to be looking at 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 their market share and and they're a changing company. And you know, it's it's incredible to think about you know Apple in the in the mid '90s when I was was uh, entering the the teacher workforce as a fourth grade teacher, and um, you know, being on the ropes and having to have the investment by Microsoft and, you know, the, the arc that the company has taken and that consumer electronics have taken. So um, I, I hope that we'll see, you know, Apple uh, make the investment in the, in the pro line and, you know, not, not turn their backs as, as it was on, you know, some of their most, most dedicated uh, users. Um, 
it's going to take a lot, I think, to, to get people to actually switch. You know, we've, Apple ran that whole switcher campaign, you know, to switch from Windows. Uh, it, I think it's going to take quite a bit to, to get uh, hardcore Apple users to, to switch over to Microsoft. Uh, so I think the, the jury's kind of out still on how many people are going to do that. Um, but, um, you know, it's, there's, there are better, there are more choices than ever before. And certainly from a security standpoint, you know, there's reasons, uh, for schools to be looking beyond a single platform and be looking at, at Chrome, um, not instead of just, you know, thinking about windows or thinking about Mac as a single standard. Absolutely. Okay. Shall we dig in the big one? Um, let me do a quick shout out to uh, Peggy George. I think she is uh, watching us live tonight, as she often does. And she had tweeted this uh, link number seven. Uh, it's a TED Talk video by Zainep Tefiki. I don't know if I, is that right. Do you know how to say that name? Tefexi. Uh, Machine intelligence makes human morals more more important. Uh, really, really good TED Talk, and touches on uh, an idea that we've talked about here a little bit that. You know, STEM ethics are, it's an issue. You know, it's not just a matter of helping kids learn to code. It's also going to be, um, you know, making decisions about the code that's written and thinking about the, the choices that we have as we use technologies like AI and as we, as we design AI. And so, uh, that was a great, great TED talk. And I think that Peggy shared that perhaps after our, our last show. So I would uh, certainly commend that to folks and, um, you know, where where are you today on the? Uh, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about democracy and 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 things like that with surveillance and things. But where where are you in terms of your thinking about AI and moral dilemmas and ethics and all all of those kind of things? Is that something that you'll offer, by the way, for the the Montana Virtual Academy? I know you guys can offer things that you know aren't offered anywhere anywhere else. Is is anybody teaching that class yet? Uh, no, not, not yet, although we're, we're thinking about ways that we can be doing um, uh, technology courses that, that do uh, kind of touch other disciplines like that, that, you know, there is a lot of focus around coding right now because of, of the nationwide focus on that. We get a lot of requests for that, but I think, you know, tech and society sort of things could be an interesting way to approach the issue. And I am, you know, very convinced, as we've talked about uh, many weeks in the past, that, um you know, we're not doing enough here, right? Like, it's just there, we, we have an underwhelming amount of discussion going on in schools related to technology's features. And so if we could do a class like that, that would be great. Um, you know, I, I talk a lot about this. I think a lot about this. Um, I'm obviously all in on a lot of different platforms. Um, you know, AI is starting to become an increasing part of, um, you know, the way I engage in the world, you know, I have weather forecasts that, 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 uh, are insert itself into my life in the morning. It, you know, the, I, the current app I'm using only notifies me when the weather's interesting as opposed to when it's just, you know, the weather, um, you know, I, it, machine logarithms are, are starting to, you know, inform me that the things that may modify my day and, and the way I engage. Um, and uh, there are implications to that, I think. But I'm still cautiously optimistic that before the AI becomes, um, you know, too, uh, uh, obfuscated, um, too, uh, dystopian that we'll sit down and, and figure out some good ways to, to, uh, make sure that we're getting what we want out of it and not, you know, let it uh, go too far. So I, I'm cautiously optimistic. The interesting thing that, uh, that Zainep makes in this TED Talk is, is talking about machine learning and the black box that machine learning can become because unlike something that is coded that you can peer into to the algorithm and, and really see how it made that decision, uh, a machine learning system that you are basically uh, conditioning to say, yes, I like that outcome, no, I don't, and it's making making decisions and changes you know, can become a real black box and, and, and can generate some things that, that, that seem irrational and that, you know, the, it's important to, to insert morals into that. And I don't, I don't know. I, it, we're machine learning, I guess, is, is probably just part of AI and it's, it's being transparent to us, you know, using Google home, using Siri, we don't really know uh, how people are writing those algorithms that are, that are generating the results that we have. But, um, I don't know. I think it's 
it's the importance of literacy and it's like the the Douglas Rushkoff uh, program or be programmed uh, book, which which I uh, listened to on Audible a while back. You know, it's it's not to say that everybody has to be a coder and know Java and Python, but it is to say we need people to to be articulate and to be informed and you know to be able to um, to weigh in on on decisions that that involve uh, technology and coding and to uh, to have a, a literacy with that. And I think, you know, we're, we're actually talking at our school in, um, you know, maybe within two or three years of having a mandatory computer science uh, trimester class for students. And, um, you know, we're that, to bring that back to schools and what we should be doing, I think that we should be looking at the requirements for graduation and the ways in which coding and, you know, app literacy and, and um, also a, a citizenship level understanding of these issues, you know, should, should, should be, should play a part in the, the, the mandated standardized, uh, you know, expectation for everybody in terms of graduation. So I don't know that that's going to be a clean, you know, here's algebra one and, and this is exactly what everybody's going to be doing, but hopefully folks are, are uh, wrestling with these these ideas and and finding ways for these conversations to you know be coming into into classrooms and thinking about it, things are changing so quickly that we're not we're not going to have a ton of <laughs> not going to have a ton of time to uh, you know take 20 years to adopt a new curriculum before we turn around and say you know oh my gosh look at all the self-driving cars and the truck drivers that are out of business and or you know big big changes that are happening in society so yep absolutely all right. Well, take us to this article. I'm glad that you got to read it as well. This was one of the most uh, thought-provoking articles I've read in a good while. This uh, article is called Google Democracy and the Truth about Internet Search from The Guardian from uh, Carol Cadwalla on December 4th. And I guess um, the thing that I'll toss out first uh, is that <laughs> there there's a company, which we can get the citation for clicking on the link, which was a consultant for both the Brexit uh, campaign to have the uh, to have uh, Britain exit the EU, as well as the Trump campaign, and uh, Bannon, who's one of the the more controversial appointees in the Trump administration, is on the board of this company. And one of the things that they're doing, and, and one of the things that they've done, and again, it's a black box that we don't really have the insight into was use something like 5,000 data points on 230 million Americans to send very targeted messages to to sway votes. Uh, and that was in the case of the, the U.S. election, but, but Brexit as well. And we definitely had this, you know, sort of shocking surprise of, of votes that people are, are trying to, to unravel and, and unwrap and figure out what does this mean, and we may – get to talk about the Stephen Hawking article, which is, which is a, a response to that as well. So I don't know what, what really stood out for you in this guardian piece and, and how do you think that comes back to schools in terms of what we should be talking about? Well, I mean, I, part of it for me is that I, I think about things in terms of search engine optimization. There's a whole industry around how do you get your stuff to come to the top of Google and Google has always claimed that, the best search engine optimization is to have good content, right? They've been uh, very, uh, 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 very adamant that you can't tweak to be able to, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, tweak Google search results. And they've also been um, very secretive. And I think the article mentions that about their logarithm and what the formula is, which probably takes in hundreds, if not thousands of data points in order to determine what ends up at the top of search engines. But it's not a surprise to me both that there is a concerted effort on the part of political folk. And I have no reason to believe that this is a, a you know, a, a right wing phenomenon. I think that there's probably uh, things happening on both sides of the uh, uh, situation as well as there are uh, people trying to tweak, I would assume, from multiple political points of view. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, at what point can we trust a search engine and what point can't we trust a search engine? And um, I like to think of it in terms of one of the things that I've started doing when I work with teachers more often now is to say that we've underwhelmed or uh, we've been underwhelming in the way we've taught search to students. Um, in a lot of cases, we don't teach it at all. And then worse, if we do teach it, we're not, um, you know, uh, 
helping people with the, the, the savvy tricks that you need in order to become a great searcher, right? Um, some people would argue, and I've had this discussion with, with Martin Horatio at the University of Montana before, and he makes a great point that at some point the search engine would be smart enough that you don't need to tweak it because it's going to anticipate the knowledge that you need before you need it. Uh, that's a whole can of worms beyond what we could get to tonight. But, uh, but it's true that I don't think we treat searching at, enough as a critical thinking exercise exercise. We treat it as a fact uh, acquisition exercise. It's not. It's a critical thinking exercise. And not only do you need to be able to determine what search uh, terms will get what comes back to you, you have to then start balancing, especially for things that are not factual questions, right? And by the way, factual questions are um, you know, how many people are there in the United States? It's not, you know, how many people can the earth uh, handle right like that's that those are not uh, those are not the same levels of questions right and the more interpretive it becomes the more you have to be willing and able to engage in an advanced search technique which involves looking at multiple sites and considering who the source is and using your own background knowledge to be able to make determinations about that um, there's a larger classroom implication that I'll, I want to talk about a little bit later but I guess it, it, it probably begs the question, um, you know, we, we've also talked a lot about in, in past weeks, social media's impact on the most recent election, right? So I have to wonder, are a lot of people going to search engines to, 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 to look for facts anymore? Or is a search engine actually a relatively dated way for us to engage with information? Hmm. Well, so this article highlights the idea that uh, especially right-wing organizations have really shaped the information landscape, not only from an SEO standpoint like Jason is talking about, yep. and they've got a, a pretty good spatial map by Jonathan Albright, who's an assistant professor of communications at Elon University in North Carolina, um, showing the connections to these different sites. And one of the biggest outcomes of this, and it happened the day after this article was published, is that when you would put in things like Muslims are, blacks yep. are, you know, there are some very negative um, things that are that are coming up in the search results. And Google's defense previously had been, well, this is just the algorithm, you know, we're not choosing that. And the author's uh, point on this, um, Carol... Cadwallader, um, was that, you know, Google needs to step up ethically, much in the same way we've heard people call for Twitter to step up for folks who are just, you know, being incredibly horrible trolls and, and harassers and, uh, really persecutors of, of people, uh, on racial and other, you know, ethnic, um, religious, uh, you know, terms um, to to uh, to weigh in on this and not just let the algorithm, you know, spout this this stuff, which which has been, you know, SEO sort of program to 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 do. And so um, what you know, Google actually did respond and take and remove some of those results. I mean, it, it reminds me of information literacy conversations from the early 2000s with the Martin Luther King site sponsored by stormfront.org. Um, I actually had yep. people, I wrote an article for the Tech Edge, which is TCEA's uh, magazine, uh, talking about uh, in, you know, digital literacy, and uh, I think it's called Digital Literacy Now, and, and talking about, you know, it's sort of an Allen November kind of digital literacy lesson where you're going to look at the domain and look at who, where it comes from. And, you know, they were asking me actually not to link to it because by linking to the, the Stormfront yeah. Martin Luther King site, I was giving it more power so that it would be higher in, in the search results um, in, in Google's PageRank system. So, um, but it's not just about search because I think what's yeah. happened so dramatically, it's like in your Facebook, I mean, how many of us have um, either unfriended people or really reduced our use of Facebook? Because we're like, oh my gosh, you know, this is so extreme. We've, we've had a lot of extreme links generated and created, pushed to people, you know, sponsored links. And so the information bubble that we uh, are in inside social media, especially within Facebook, you know, has been really sh uh, strongly shaped by outlier views. And 
um, what I'm reminded of, Jason, when you talk about the search skills and how we've done a poor job of searching, it makes me think of things that I've heard Gary Steger say and thinking about, you know, sort of Seymour Papert and this idea of, of wanting students to, to, to have agency over the technology, not to just be the passive receivers and consumers of the search engine. Like, well, I just searched for election and this is what I got. But, you know, really having agency over it. And it's not like you're writing the, the PHP code to do something like this, but you are, you know, iteratively searching. You're using tools to change time. Uh, yep. Maybe you're searching for different file types. I mean, it's the kind of stuff that Google would, would usually put front and center on a Google certified teacher summit or something like that to, to say, Hey, we want you all to go back to your schools as savvy searchers and as champions of teaching search so that students recognize this is a powerful tool. This isn't just a car to get right. in and drive from A to B. I mean, this, I don't know what the right analogy and metaphor for this is going to be, but I mean, this is like a, like a time machine or something. I mean, it's, there's a lot of controls here that you can push and, and manipulate in order to generate results. And I, uh, I definitely agree that that's a bandwagon we need to, we need to be on. And, um, I don't know. I, I'm not sure, you know, exactly what our what our best way to advocate for that is, but certainly more people's awareness has been raised by this with all the fake news and and people just recognizing that, oh my gosh, this is, you know, this has had big implications on major elections and on two continents, and it it's a continuing phenomenon. It's not just something that's going away because the election's over. Yep. I would add to that the notion that, I mean, this is part of the reason why I rail against uh, you notions that teaching content doesn't matter in an era of Google. And it, you know, we goes back to um, our discussion last week about the Stanford study. The kids are terrible at spotting fake news versus real news. Um, and, and, and a lot of the media around those notions, but I, I would echo the, um, I would echo the notion that if we were teaching more, more and better search uh, in schools, we probably could rely on it more and, and give, as, as you're suggesting very correctly, uh, Wes, agency um, to students to do that. But I, I mean, and I'm particularly sensitive about this as a history teacher, but, um, you know, I am terrified by the notion that we would get rid of, um, you know, at least some notion of authority in a classroom uh, to, to teach history in exchange to, to push kids out to a, a search engine where they are I- unable to determine what is real versus what is not, right? And it, it, it's less so an issue when you're talking about the Federalists. It's much more of an issue if you start talking about, you know, uh, you know, uh, Nixon, um, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Clinton, um, Bush, uh, um, uh, like the the more modern you get, the the less we can rely on you know the the first twenty five sources you get in Google to give you a correct piece. And I just think our kids are prepared for that. And so, uh, and then you 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 then start putting it in context of science, right? Like you type in global warming into uh, Google, right? Like I believe in global warming. I believe it's human caused. I agree with the ninety nine point seven percent of scientists that 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 believe that but if you look at a google search i'd be willing to bet that 50 percent of the first hundred links are are at, at least critical if not straight up climate deniers right when the science goes completely almost completely in one direction right and that's where if we're not teaching folks about starting to compare sources and 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 build complex uh, 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 rules in our head for what information is correct and what is useful and what is not. I think that's a, that's a really important piece of all this. So, uh, you know, I, I'm obviously very conscious about this right now. I'm hypersensitive to these notions because of of, of the the election cycle being over with and the results of that election. But that does not mean that uh, it hasn't been brewing for a while. So I am very happy that we are able to. Um, you know, to to reintroduce some of these topics, I think, into the to the mainstream discussion amongst teachers. Well, this segues to the Stephen Hawking uh, article, which I put in for this week from December 1st. This is also from The Guardian. Uh, and his editorial politics piece is opinion piece. 
this is the most dangerous time for our planet. Subtitle, we can't go on ignoring inequality because we have the means to destroy our world, but not to escape it. And his take on the Brexit vote specifically, because he's in Cambridge, England, uh, as well as the U.S. election with Trump, is that this was a rejection of the elites by the people and that, um, you know, people's anger at globalization and the failure of this promise of free trade to, you know, bring them a, a better uh, a better income. Um, it ties into a book which I which I actually started reading today, and I've resolved to read over the holidays. It's Raising the Floor by Andy Stern, and it's about UBI, the Universal Basic Income. Um, you know, he's saying that we. They, this is a nice way of saying it. We're going to have to share more. You know, we're, our, our corporations and our wealthy individuals in society are going to have to recognize that the trajectory of technology, AI, robotics, and, you know, the continuing – this is the third wave of Alvin Toffler – that it is not leading to full employment. In fact, it's, it's going in the reverse direction. Right. And I think – I put this link in here as well, and if I didn't – I definitely need to drop it in um, about this was the um, it's like the guy in charge of I'm going to have to uh, go to my my Twitter. Um, he's in charge of not the World Bank, but like uh, the, the Bank of England. And he's talking about how many millions of jobs are going to be displaced in the next. Yeah. Uh, Carney, um, Mark Carney. Uh, declares robots could put 15 million Britons out of work. Uh, and this is uh, in the next, what's the projection? It's like the next uh, decade. Um, in an alarming vision for workers, Mark Carney warned that many jobs would be hollowed out as huge technological advances meant roles could be automated instead. Uh, he's the Bank of England governor. Um, I don't know to the degree to which articles like this are in the mainstream media, but um, I and, and I t could I could totally be wrong with this, you know, because I'm living in my own little bubble and possible echo chamber as well. But it, it seems to me and I, and this is something that, that this EdTech SR experience is sort of doing for me. I was telling my wife today, it's almost like I'm I'm in a course, you know, because I'm like reading more articles and I'm right. More focused yeah. on, on some of this stuff than I have been before. And so I'm more attuned to it. But as we think about artificial intelligence, robotics, globalization, elections, you know, where are we going with all this technology, um, the these authors. I mean, this is not an, a fringe guy, right? This is the governor of the Bank of England, um, and Stephen Hawking is is he is definitely a uh, academic elite, you know, live, living in the rarefied air of of the ivory tower. But um, I think that that we need to we need to pay attention to this, and I don't. Uh, I sort of am a little bit pessimistic that we're not going to be – that we're going to have a wave of protectionism and we're going to probably, you know, I mean, a, a recession and, and inflation and increased interest rates and these kind of things. And, I, I mean, if we think about Star Trek and the future and, you know, when we've got a, a more enlightened society where, you know, perhaps we do provide for the, the basic needs of all people irrespective of whether they have a J-O-B or not – um, gosh, is that going to take us 200 years to get to? And I, I don't know. I mean, I'm um, having lots of thoughts along those lines. And so sometimes you become more aware and sensitized to a term or, you know, to an idea. And then you see it and you're like, and there it is again. And there it is again. And I kind of feel a little bit like, like that with, with this idea of job displacement and needing to, needing to rethink economics, uh, which is a, a pretty hard thing living as I do in uh, in the oil the oil belt and our you know right. uh, the there's probably no senator that's a stronger climate denier than uh, James Inhofe who was a, a very kind man that's whose office got Alexander and I into the White House in 2009 and met with us and some other people but you know the guy is uh, largely funded by oil and gas and and is one of the strongest voices against anybody talking about climate change today. So I don't know that I, these topics are so politically sensitive 
you know, it's we 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 shared an article uh, a bunch of shows ago about how civics teachers were hesitant to teach about the election because things were so polarized. Yep. And I I would suspect that you know issues like climate change and like rethinking the Protestant work ethic and the economics of of the free market. I mean, those those are some pretty pretty uh pretty tough topics, and and those may not find themselves into the the high school curriculum anytime soon, but maybe, maybe they need to, they certainly need to become part of our consciousness as a society, as we, as we grapple with these kinds of issues. And I think as somebody who's advocating for technology, you know, I don't want to be painting a false picture to say, Hey, everybody just learn to code and we'll have full employment with, you know, <laughs> better income for everybody. Cause I was thinking the other morning, like, you know, if, if I am a smart person, why am I not, you know, rolling in the dough, having, uh, you know, a fair bit of digital literacy and, and knowledge about all this? I mean, it, it's not like uh, digital literacy and, and knowledge of, of computational thinking is just going to lead you to a, uh, a gold rush and, and a gravy train of, uh, of unlimited income. I'm, I'm sure some people have figured that out better than others, but I don't know. That's a long, that's a long ramble. Is that resonate with anything you're thinking about? It, it, it does. And, you know, like these are all issues we, we're going to have to come to terms with. Um, you know, I, I, I know I've mentioned this probably a half dozen times already on uh, on the podcast, but, you know, I am thinking a lot about, you know, can we can we undo globalization? Probably not. We definitely can't undo um, mechanization, right? Like that's that I think that ship has sailed. And, um, you know, I a lot of the um, um, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the election topics, and again, it doesn't matter who really won, that the topics were, were going to uh, come to a head either way. But the bottom line is, is that we are, um, you know, we're, 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 we have to change. I mean, we're not, a lot of jobs are going away with mechanization. A lot of jobs have gone away. More will go away. Um, let alone, you know, the fact that our workforce will, will increase many, 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 many hundreds of millions, uh, you know, every couple of decades. But, you know, we, we, education's going to be impacted by this. I don't know how we, we fix this stuff yet because I, I don't think it's quite as simple as fixing XYZ, but, um, you know, it's something we all need to be thinking about for sure. Okay. Well, I want to, it's not like a station identification uh, thing, but I, I do want to tell everybody uh, if you're joining, I think we just had uh, somebody else join us live. We do have a, uh, a live chat that I haven't uh, jumped into in a while. Hey, look, it's Ben Wilkoff. Woohoo! Ben coming in from, from Denver. Uh, he says, have you seen the humans not apply video from CGP Gray? I don't think so. CGP Gray is a YouTuber that has some pretty, pretty good uh, videos, but I haven't, I haven't seen that one. We'll have to check it out. Have you seen that? Before? I have. It's, it's pretty poignant. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I do want to let everybody know that our links are on edtechsr.com slash uh, links. And, um, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to go to some other articles that we've got here, but you know, Jason, I've got the Christmas tree behind me here. It's the holiday time. Uh, we haven't come up with a good title for this uh, kind of a corner, which is sort of like the, the, the B side or something else, but uh, the, the question which has nothing to do with EdTech news is just holiday memory or holiday tradition, you know, or, or holiday dream. We'll do that, and I'll go first, and I'll say holiday dream. Uh, my uh, dad uh, grew up in uh, Powell, Wyoming, and uh, we're, we're, I think, going to be able to go back to Yellowstone as a family this summer. Uh, we've got all these Super 8 movies. My parents are going to move out of their uh, their home, we think, this this spring and, and move into a retirement community. We're going to be like, what are we going to do with all these movies? Well, we've got some of these that, that show going to the in, the, in the, the heated snow coach snowmobile to Old Faithful Inn. So one of... Um, one of our uh, Christmas dreams or holiday dreams at some point would probably be, you know, snowmobiling in the in the heated snow coach to Old Faithful Lodge and and having that kind of experience up there. I, who knows? Maybe it's overrated, and we're going to be wishing for our 38 degree, you know, cold uh, Oklahoma winter. But um, we uh, we've definitely definitely have had some good memories with. We haven't had the ice storms and the severe weather uh, since you know the late. 
the late 2000s. 2007, when I got to go to Macworld with my cousin Devin and, and saw Jobs announce the iPhone, we didn't know he was going to do that. You know, we got stuck in Denver because we had an ice storm that literally dumped over a foot of ice on Oklahoma City and created absolutely one of the best sledding dreams ever for my kids with the runner sleds, you know, uh, back in our, in our neighborhoods. But anyway, any particular either holiday dream, maybe you're, are you're going to live your dream, right? Is it, are you going to live your dream on the travel this, this um, holiday? It's, it's a dream. I mean, I, I, I've always really, and I'm going to share a little bit of this with my geek of the week, but I'm, I'm a travel nerd. I, I've always been obsessed with airports and with world travel. And I end up, you know, meeting my wife who, uh, way before she, I was in, in the picture for her, her family has, uh, you know, she's been to every continent. She's very, um, uh, very astute world traveler, but, uh, yeah, I'll get to go back and we'll get to spend almost two weeks in Europe, uh, at the end of the month. And, um, and I, I like that. We like traveling to Christmas time. Um, we, we oftentimes will spend, uh, we try usually for warmer climates. Unfortunately, we're going to be in the, the cold rain in, in Western Europe, uh, during our time there, but we are very, um, very fortunate and, and very excited to, to, to travel, uh, during that time. I think that, um, I tra- travel has always been transformative to me. It made me a better history teacher. It made me a better geography teacher. Um, but I think now more than ever, it's important that um, I get out and experience other people's experiences in the world. Awesome. Awesome. Um, well, uh, Ben Wilkoff did put into the chat as well for this uh, CGP Gray video of Humans Not Apply that it uh, goes into the argument for how nearly all jobs will be taken over by AI and why that's both good and bad. So um, maybe we'll have lots more time to travel and be creative artists and, uh, you know, sit around in our homes and have Google Hangouts and debate philosophy. Um, you know, but but all that is predicated on a, a universal, a basic income that somebody will provide. So <laughs> I think that may be a while in coming. Yep. All right. Um, you want to talk a little bit about, uh, let's see, I guess security. I think I put most of those articles under security um, and that we're getting to the top of the hour. So we're going to, we won't, we won't go too much longer here before we get to our geeks of the week. Um, one of the reasons why I was also reticent to think about embracing the pixel is it seems like we're, we're reading frequent articles as far as Android hacks and, and compromises. And it, it does seem like if you, if you stay up to date on the latest and, uh, operating system, then maybe you're not going to be compromised. But this was an Ars Technica from November 30th, about 1 million Google accounts compromised by Android malware called Gooligan. Um, and I think, did you drop in the Gooligan checker link? Was I, that did. I did, uh, yes. So that's um, a way to run that on your phone and then see if, if you got it? Yep, it's actually your Google account that could have been compromised. And, um, you know, I, I, I tend to think that as an open source operating system, Google uh, Google's... Uh, Transparency helps make it more secure, but they do have a very open philosophy related to applications. In this particular case, the only people that were impacted were those that were so-called side-loaded apps uh, outside the Google Play Store. Those are the people that are impacted by the so-called Gooligan uh, uh, malware uh, attack. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, we have to be super conscious of it and, you know, keep up with those pieces. And we, we talk a lot about this here on the podcast, but... Um, we are definitely in an era where uh, we're probably not paying close enough attention to security. Well, we had a speaker on Monday come to our school and talk to parents at 8.15 for an hour and then talk to our middle schoolers. Uh, he is a prosecuting attorney here in Oklahoma City and was talking about Internet safety. So lots of, you know, stories about uh, sexting and pornography and, um, you know, poor choices that students have, have made. Uh, mainly young people, but, you know, probably lots of older people that have made bad choices too. But he showed a picture, uh, which led me to this article by Motherboard from October 20th. Um, the article's titled, How Hackers Broke Into John Podesta and Colin Powell's Gmail Accounts. And the uh, picture that he showed was a screenshot of this email, which looked like it came from Google, you know, very googly colors, you know, and this was evidently the one that Podesta and I guess, was he the chair of the Democratic National Committee? High-ranking guy. These are yeah, both very smart people, okay? Uh, Colin yep. Powell, very smart guy. Um, and, it, and it said, you know, someone has logged into your account from the Ukraine. Please click here to reset your password. It was a bit.ly link. As you moused over, it appeared to be going to a Google, you know, site. 
But, you know, rather than just saying, okay, I'm going to go, you know, out of this window, go to, you know, google.com or mail.google.com, whatever, go to my account settings, um, you know, Colin Powell and John Podesta both clicked the bit.ly link, get, you know, compromised their credentials that led to their accounts being hacked. Um, you know, and that's not a platform issue. That's phishing with, with a pH. Uh, and so anyway, that was just something that really got my attention. And as a technology director and, and somebody who's more attuned to those kinds of things, uh, you know, I, it's, we're very susceptible to this on an individual basis and an organizational basis. And, uh, you know, when people want to target you specifically, um, it's, uh, it's, it's rather scary what, what, what can be done and, and how many people are going to click on a link. So um, it's, it's not to try to put so much fear into people that they're not going to click any links and they're not going to, you know, respond, respond to anything via email. But uh, we, we are in a much more toxic security environment and, um, you know, the security strategy, we did a presentation two weeks ago for a local conference down in Norman and talking about a layered security strategy and, you know, reasons why we want to have more workstations on Chrome and uh, why we want more people to be saving things in the cloud and not, you know, saving things locally. So um, I don't I, the, the conclusion from that, I guess, is just to, you know, be careful out there. And, and, and certainly when you're putting in your account credentials, and I think there's one other article uh, that's up in the surveillance section, but it's from Fortune on November 26th. This tool can help you disappear from the Internet. Uh, that website, which, of course, you should question and wonder, do I put my credentials into this? But it will show you every site and app that you have authorized to use your Google account credentials. You know, and I had over 100 uh, most of which I'm not using at all now, uh, right. some of which I couldn't log into before. Um, but it, um, you know, it, it highlights the importance of, of trying to be very sure whenever you give those credentials out that, you know, it's, it's a legit site. So I don't know what I want to say with that. Be very, very scared. <laughs> be careful. So maybe, maybe we should, maybe we should go to, to, to geeks of the week. So you want to, you, you've got a few more of those than I, you want to, you want to take a sure. some geeks of the week? Yeah, I, I will say that, uh, you know, I am planning a, a trip to Europe. Uh, it's been three years since I've last traveled, uh, uh, internationally. Very excited to go back. I'm, I'm actually challenging myself, which is insane because, uh, you know, uh, 10 years ago I was the world's most diva packer, like, you know, four or five suitcases for an overnight trip sort of thing. But, um, I'm going to live out of for two weeks a a a bag that is carry on sized. So um, I just bought a new Eagle Creek bag. I'm really excited about. It. I'm going to use packing cubes and other strategies, and I'm going to try to rewear clothes a lot, um, which is not my usual mo. But I, I love reading about travel. I love reading about flying. I love reading about kind of hacking the system with frequent flyer miles and stuff. And I want to share. A couple of my favorite websites for that. One of them is just ridiculous, but it's awesome. AirlineMeals.net is literally a community of people that post pictures of their airline meals. Uh, everything from terrible to awesome. Um, I, and I love it. It's it's so great and so geeky and so narrow. Um, SeatGuru.com is an excellent website if you find yourself uh, uh, able to pick your seats. Uh, if you know the airline and the plane that they're using, it'll give you advice on which seats are terrible. So even if you're sitting in super economy class, you can avoid seats that have particular issues, you know, near a restroom, uh, doesn't recline, um, uh, doesn't have any uh, uh, under seat uh, um, storage. Excellent website for that. Uh, it's now owned, by, I think, by Travelocity. Um, but it's a great website. And then four blogs that I read pretty regularly that have travel news, airline news, uh, that sort of thing. The points guy.com is a, a community of writers that uh, like to tweak and figure out interesting ways to get airline points and use them to travel around the world. Um, Cranky Flyer is a travel blog from kind of a critical point of view, but still really well done. Airline Geeks is the same. And then uh, one that I started reading more recently was uh, One Mile at a Time, which is a boardingarea.com blog. And these are all just really great, you know, if you're into the industry. Um, and I have a lot of affinity for airline flight. Uh, I love travel lounges. Oh, I love them so much. And uh, finding ways to, to get into those, even if you're not a super elite flyer, um, you know, they're, they're, those are my, uh, uh, those are my, my, my fun things to do 
uh, where my nerdy uh, computer obsession uh, meets a nerdy obsession of another realm. So excellent websites for travel. And I'm also starting to go through the process of getting all my travel gear together. Uh, I bought a new uh, <laughs> a, a new uh, converter that is this fancy, uh, like, Ikea color-looking one, so I'm excited about that. And I've got a phone that I'll use just in Europe, and I'll drop a SIM card in when I get to London. And, um, yeah, lots of interesting travel stuff uh, is starting to invade my home. So, um, so yeah, um, awesome. Oh, did I lose you? Oh, okay. Um, well, we have, I was just over looking at our survey. Um, we have only had one person fill out our survey and I know that we have more, more viewers and listeners. So if you've not made yourself known to us, uh, via a tweet or, uh, via our chat room, please, uh, fill out our survey. Um, Jason's did, did a lot of good geeks of the week there. Mine this, this week is quick. It is just safeshare.tv. Uh, there are several different sites that can strip out, you know, extra things when you're sharing a YouTube video with students. Um, two of the great things about SafeShare, and I think shout out to Peggy George, because Peggy, you may be the one that let Shelly and I know about that via uh, Classroom 2.0 Live. It works with Seesaw. So my wife is flipping links into the Seesaw Learning Journal for her third and fourth graders. Um, but it also functions like TubeChop. If you, if you use TubeChop back in the day, that was a flash-based um, uh, tool that you could use to, to basically just show a certain segment of a YouTube video. And so she has set up uh, listening centers, which are kind of like watching centers. They're doing the best Christmas pageant ever as a novel study. And so their video is on YouTube, uh, but she wants kids to just see sections of it. So it's a very great tool to create links, uh, share via QR code, and then you can also you know, decide part of a longer video that you want to show as a segment, safeshare.tv. So uh, uh, just to recap, we're going to be back next week on the 14th with our technology shopping cart holiday show. Uh, probably have a couple other guests, and so uh, that should be fun and give you a couple weeks if you're going to be purchasing any gifts for family and friends before the 25th to uh, possibly uh, you know, use some of the advice of uh, our EdTech SR panelists to do some last-minute shopping. Uh, we'll be off the following week, but the either the last week of the year or the first week, uh, we're going to try to connect with Jason as he is across the pond in uh, in Europe and do our end of 2016 in review show like we have done before. So, Jason, where can our cast of thousands of listeners catch you online? Well, my name is Jason Neifer. I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school in fabulous Montana. Um, that's my day job. I'm also the tech savvy teacher in, I'm sorry, the tech savvy administrator in residence for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, where we, we do have a wonderful conference coming up in February. You can find out more at ncce.org and I blog for ncce, blog.ncce.org. And I'm on the Twitters as tech savvy teach so you can find me there or here on wednesday night with wes awesome and i'm wes fryer my blog is speedofcreativity.org you can find me on twitter at w fryer and a few other places as well i've got some of those linked in my twitter profile and i am now happy to be sharing podcasts periodically on three different channels this is certainly the most frequent one at techsr.com but i've uh, been publishing a little bit more on a oh look is the cat making a appearance um, on fuel for educational change agents. In fact, I just published a, a recording that my wife had made at a presentation yesterday for some elementary teachers here in Oklahoma City. You can find that at audio.speedofcreativity.org. And you can also find my main podcast at speedofcreativity.org somewhere in the navigational links at the top. So we want to thank both uh, Peggy George and Ben Wilkoff for joining us live and uh, Peggy says in the, the chat, Jason, you would have been really proud of your Montana teacher who was our featured teacher on Crossroom 2.0 Live, Nikki Brandenburg. And, yeah, she was yeah, she awesome. was awesome. Yeah, awesome. I got a chance to listen to it after the fact. Nikki's awesome. So, uh, yeah, shout out. So please let us know if you listen to the show, if you got any questions, uh, ideas, things that you'd like us to tackle. We are definitely open to your suggestions. So thanks very much, everybody, and stay safe out there.